This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Reconstructionist by Jonathan J. Foster. With so much changing in our society around sexuality, authority, patriarchy, religion, truth, and more, what we need is a book to help us navigate those changes while keeping love at the forefront. The Reconstructionist is that kind of book. Pick a copy up today on Amazon or any other fine digital retailer. The Reconstructionist, people greater than text, mercy greater than sacrifice, and love greater than fear. Hey there, this is Curtis Holtzen, author of The God Who Trusts, and I've upped my standards. Now, up yours by listening to Second Cup with Keith. Hello and welcome to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and in this episode, I want to talk about the three views of hell. Now, If you're like me, you probably have really only known one view of hell. At least I was raised to really only believe or understand that there was only really one sort of Christian or quote-unquote biblical view of the doctrine of hell. And the one I was raised with that you most likely were raised with is the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. This is the view that anyone who dies apart from Christ will face the judgment and then will be sent to an endless torment in the flames and fires of hell for all eternity. But the shocking thing is if we look at the early church, if we look at the history of this doctrine, and I have, what we will see is a few surprising things. And one of the first things that I noticed that really was shocking to me was, first of all, the fact that the early Christian church has always had sort of three different views of the doctrine of hell. Again, most Christians are unaware of that, but it is true. Actually, in fact, I'm going to read a quote. This is a reference in the new Schaff Herzog Christian Encyclopedia, and it says this. In the first five or six centuries of Christianity, there were six known theological schools, of which four of them, one in Alexandria, one in Antioch, one in Caesarea, one in Edessa, were universalist. One in Ephesus accepted conditional immortality or annihilation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And only one in Carthage or Rome taught endless punishment of the wicked. So that's a shock, isn't it? First of all, to recognize that out of the six known theological schools that existed in the first five or six centuries of Christianity, out of those six schools, four of them, Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, and Edessa, all taught Christian universalism or universal reconciliation, or as it's sometimes known as apocatastasis. And again, we'll explain this view in just a second, because most people don't even really know what that means. But these were the majority, basically. Four of the six known theological schools for the first five or six centuries of church history were universalist. Only one in Ephesus taught annihilation or conditional immortality, and only one in Rome taught endless punishment for the wicked. So, That's a shock, isn't it? To recognize that for five to six hundred years, the early church, in the dominant view, the majority view, embraced universal reconciliation. That's a shock. So this is obviously a topic that most Christians are confused about, don't really know much about, and that's what I'm hoping to cover in this episode of Second Cup with Keith. I would say before we jump into the three Christian views of hell, it's really important for us to take a step back and really ask the question, Where does this doctrine of eternal torment come from? Because it's also an interesting fact to note, 
that if you look at the Hebrew scriptures, right? So we look at the Old Testament scriptures. What we have is a record of how God revealed himself to the Jewish people for roughly 4,000 years of sort of, you know, Jewish history and the, and the nation of Israel. And if we look at those scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, we will find absolutely no references whatsoever to eternal conscious torment. Now that right there, that fact alone should make us pause. So think about it. If God's plan has always been that anyone who does not love God or worship God, anyone who is a pagan, anyone who rejects God, that person is going to suffer the eternal fires of hell. Don't you think it would make sense for God to mention that? Just sort of mention it to at least one of those Old Testament prophets, right? He could have said something to Isaiah or Moses or Abraham or Jeremiah. That would have been really great. But no, God never once mentioned it. So that alone, again, for me anyway, is a huge red flag. I really personally can't believe that God always intended to burn his enemies in an eternal flame of hell, but never, ever breathed a word of it for about 4,000 years in the Old Testament. By the way, we know historically that this doctrine of hell, this idea of eternal torment specifically, we know where it came from and where it crept into the Jewish religion or Jewish thought. And it was during what we call the intertestamental period. What that means is it's the time after the Old Covenant scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, had been written and the canon was essentially closed. And so it's between the, the closing of the Jewish canon and the coming of Jesus, right, in the first century, it's during that time. So this doctrine of eternal torment was never spoken by any of the Old Testament prophets, either the major or the minor prophets. It doesn't appear in any of the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. But it does creep in from other sources between the closing of the Old Testament scriptures and the coming of Jesus. And specifically, this teaching of eternal torment and hell, where it creeps in from, is from Egyptian and other pagan sources. Again, that should make us pause. <laughs> Why is it, again, if this was God's plan from the beginning, he doesn't reveal it through Old Testament prophets, but somehow decides to reveal it to his people through pagan sources? That's suspicious to me. That alone should make you pause. Now, we quite often will hear that, uh, in fact, I, I said this all the time when I was a Southern Baptist pastor and I would preach or teach or even do evangelism, I would quite often repeat what I, the phrase that I had heard many times, which is this, that no one talks more about hell in the Bible than Jesus does. Wow, that sounds shocking. But the truth is, Jesus does not talk about eternal torment in the scriptures. He really doesn't. Now, there are scriptures where Jesus will use phrases, and he'll use certain phrases, and you'll find them in the red letters in different places in the Gospels, where Jesus will make references to things like, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Or he'll make references to things like, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and things like that. He'll even sometimes use the phrase, eternal punishment. But what's going on there? What's happening? If Jesus is using those phrases, isn't he talking about where people go after they die? Well, here's the funny thing. If you go and look at those scriptures and look at what Jesus says when he is speaking that way and using that kind of language, he's actually quoting from and using the exact same phrases that we find in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and 
Amos, and other Old Testament scriptures, where those Old Testament prophets were using what's called apocalyptic hyperbole to describe judgment that would come against Edom, or Babylon, or Egypt, and sometimes even warnings and prophecies against destruction that would come against the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. We've already said that nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures will we find any references to eternal torment. So, If those Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Amos and Ezekiel and Daniel and those guys, if they're using these phrases that Jesus uses, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and weeping and gnashing of teeth and the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever and this kind of language, well, we already said they don't mention eternal torment in the Old Testament, and yet they're using those same phrases, right? What are they talking about in the Old Testament when they use those phrases? Well, Again, what they're talking about is God's judgment coming on different nations, Edom, Babylon, Egypt, Jerusalem, and things like that. So it's apocalyptic hyperbole. It's using these figurative, colorful metaphors, but it's not intending to speak about some actual place where people will actually go after they die, okay? It's warnings against people who are alive right now to avoid a destruction that's coming on them if they don't turn their hearts back to God. Now, when we go and read Jesus in the New Testament, and he uses those same phrases, guess what? He's doing the exact same thing those Old Testament prophets are doing. They're not talking about where anyone goes after they die. It's not any kind of a post-mortem torture chamber in Isaiah or Amos or Jeremiah or these other passages. No, these are warnings to real people living in real places, Edom, Babylon, Egypt, etc. Jesus, when he uses those exact phrases— He is also speaking to people who are alive in Jerusalem, warning them using the exact same coded apocalyptic hyperbole language that the Jewish people, when they heard Jesus use those phrases, they would have said, ah, he's talking like Jeremiah. He sounds like Isaiah. He sounds like the the book of Amos when they're, they're warning people of this destruction that's coming against their city. Exactly. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He's warning his disciples and people in Jerusalem in the first century that if they don't turn their hearts back to God, if they don't really follow his teachings, that they're going to meet a similar fate. Not some kind of a eternal torment in flames and fire after they're dead. So what this is, the, the doctrine of eternal conscious torment takes this language, this apocalyptic hyperbole, which is intended to be metaphors about real life judgment, destruction coming on people who are alive. It takes it literally and it confuses it about something. Oh no, Jesus is talking about something that's really going to happen after we're dead. But that is not at all what he's talking about. It's not consistent with the Old Testament uses of those phrases. And it's not consistent with what Jesus says, because if you just go and look at those passages and read the context of when Jesus uses that language, he's talking about when the temple is going to be destroyed in Jerusalem, when the daily sacrifice is going to be ended, and when the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood is going to come to an end. And it's what Jesus calls the end of the age, not the end of the world. Two very, very different things going on there. So let's go back to these three views of hell, because again, historically, we do know that the early Christians held one of these three views of hell. So the one view that we're all familiar with, most likely, is the view of eternal conscious torment, right? It's this idea that anyone who dies apart from Christ is going to be judged and sent to the lake of fire tortured forever and ever and ever. Okay, this view hinges on a few assumptions. One, you have to take those verses literally and ignore apocalyptic hyperbole. And two, 
it's also built on the assumption that God is too holy to look upon anyone's sin. It also takes the view that our sins are what separate us from God, and if we don't sort of deal with that sin in this life, and we die with sin unconfessed and unrepented for, then when we die, this sin remains on us, will forever keep us separated from God for all eternity in the flames of hell. And also, again, the the idea that anyone who is not a Christian will suffer this endless torment, right? Forever and ever and ever. So are there any biblical texts to support the view? Well, yeah. Those that believe eternal conscious torment would typically turn to passages like Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46, or Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 43. They might turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. They might even turn to Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 19 and also in chapter 20. There were some early Christians who embraced this view of eternal conscious torment. Tertullian, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas. And so again, but we know that these were in the minority. In fact, Augustine himself, when he writes about and talks about his view of eternal conscious torment, he actually says, indeed, very many of the Christians in his day and age, he says, indeed, very many rejected his view of eternal conscious torment. So he acknowledges that he's in the minority, that the majority of people embrace something other than eternal conscious torment. And we're going to talk about what those views were in just a second. There's also the other view, and this view is annihilation or what's called conditional immortality. Now, this, I would say, has a little bit more scriptural support than eternal conscious torment. As I said, when you go and look at the verses that supposedly support eternal conscious torment and really dig down to what they're saying, they're not talking about, as I said, where anyone goes after they die. And they're not using the, these kinds of words in a literal sense. And we know that because we can do the study and we can look at the scriptures and we can see what's really going on and we can compare it to the Old Testament references to the same exact kind of language that's being used and we can see that consistently in the Old Testament and then therefore in the New Testament, these are not discussions about where anyone goes after they die. But when we come to annihilation, we do find some scriptural support, at least for this idea that those who die apart from Christ, and this is what the annihilationists believe, that those who die apart from Christ will face the judgment, and then they will suffer, but it's a it's a limited amount, a time of suffering. So they'll suffer for an appropriate time for their sins, and then they will basically be burned up and vanish and cease to exist. And so in this view, only God is eternal. And they would use, let's say, 1 Timothy 6.16. They would say in that verse, God alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. They also would believe that eternal life must be granted to us by God. And they might turn to Romans chapter 2 and verse 7, where it says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. And they might also turn to 1 John 5 verse 11, where it says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And there are other biblical texts to support this view of annihilation, Matthew 10.28, John 3.16, sort of, <laughs> Romans 2.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, 1 John 5.11, and 1 Timothy 6.16. So who are the people that believe this view? Well, in the early church, people like Barnabas, Hermas, Irenaeus is probably the most famous one, and we think Justin Martyr may have also embraced this view. It's not 100% clear, but there's reason to think that Justin Martyr might also have embraced that view. So in summary, annihilationists believe that because only God is eternal, 
Those who are in Christ will receive eternal life, but those without Christ will be consumed in the fire of judgment after they have suffered for a period of time for their sins in this life. And so their assumptions are that human souls are not eternal by nature, and therefore without God to sustain them, they would cease to exist. So most pronouncements about the fate of sinners use terms like death or perish or destroy and this kind of language. And we do see that kind of language being used in the New Testament. So again, I don't personally embrace the the annihilationist view, but I can understand why someone would accept that view because, again, there are scriptures that seem to say that destruction, death, perishing, etc. is the fate of those who die apart from Christ. Now, the third view in the three different views of hell is, as we said, universal reconciliation or patristic universalism or apocatastasis. As we said also, we know historically that for about five to six hundred years of church history, the majority of Christians at that time embraced this particular view. So what is the view? And and we need to explain it because a lot of people misunderstand. When I say universal reconciliation, most people just mean, oh, you, you believe then that and anyone and everyone, Hitler and mass murderers and pagans and just anybody and everybody, we all just die and go to hell. Ali Ali Oxen for you just die and you wake up in heaven. Well, not exactly. That's not what the early church believes, and that's not what I believe. This view holds that those who die without Christ, meaning without a faith saving, quote unquote, saving knowledge of Christ or a connection with Christ, they will, like those who are in Christ, pass through the fire. Now, understand what I just said. In this view, it's not that no one passes through any sort of fire or judgment. Again, the fire is just a metaphor. Universal reconciliation does not teach that no one gets to go to hell. No one gets to sort of suffer in the flames of sort of a, a judgment or a discipline or something like that. No, 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 not at all. In fact, the opposite. People that embraced universal reconciliation in the early church believed that everyone passes through the fire. Everyone both the righteous and the unrighteous, everyone passes through the fire. And we'll talk about why we believe that in just a second. But yes, everyone would pass through the fire. And But the purpose of the fire is to purify, refine, and restore everyone into right relationship with God. So eventually, one way or the other, everyone will be ultimately redeemed and restored and transformed into a right relationship with God. So in this view, God is the Savior of all mankind, not only of believers. And First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 10, supports this idea by saying, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So again, that Christ is the Savior of everyone, all people, especially those who believe, but not only those who believe. It's not an exception, right? It's everyone. This view also holds that God has reconciled the entire world to himself and no longer counts anyone's sins against them. One of my favorite verses, and I quote this a whole lot, is 2 Corinthians 5.19, which says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, but reconciling the world to himself. The other view is that God's punishments are intended to bring us into right relationship with himself. In other words, God's discipline, God's punishment, if you will, is not to torture endlessly, and it's not to destroy us forever. No, as it says in the book of Hebrews, for they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
to those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews 12, 10 through 11. And actually, if you back up to Hebrews 12, 5, it actually says this, that God disciplines all of us for our good. God disciplines those he loves, and then it says, and everyone undergoes discipline. And so again, if we just do the math, if God only disciplines his children, if God only disciplines those he loves, and everyone undergoes discipline, that means everyone is a child of God, everyone is loved of God, and the point, Hebrews 12 says, the point of that discipline is what? So that we can share in the holiness of God, and that it would yield ultimately a peaceful fruit of righteousness in everyone. Now, there are many other biblical texts who support this view. I don't have time to read all of them. In fact, I've written a blog post of 76 verses of Scripture that support the doctrine of universal reconciliation. So I obviously, I can't do that here. Maybe I'll do a special episode one day to just read a select handful of those 76 verses that I think are the most persuasive. But for now, just quickly, if you want to look them up, other biblical texts would be 1 Timothy 4.10, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, Romans 5.18 and 19. Colossians 1, 19-20, Philippians 2, 10-11, and Romans chapter 11. So, who believed this view throughout church history? Well, a lot of people. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, Theophilus of Antioch, Theodora of Mopsuesta, Didymus the Blind, Theodorus of Tarsus, and many, many others. The summary of this view of universal reconciliation, again, is God desires that everyone would be saved and that none would perish. We know there are scriptures that say exactly that. And that since God alone has the power to redeem and restore everyone, that God does so. And he thereby fulfills his own desire through the finished work of Christ, who came to reconcile the world to God. The punishment that everyone might go through in the afterlife, post-mortem, is intended to correct and restore us to a right relationship with God. And so again, all three views of hell throughout church history have, all three of them, have embraced this idea that those who die apart from Christ will endure some form of judgment or punishment, and they use the metaphor of a fire. The difference, of course, between these three views really is two things, I think. One is how you view the fire. Those who believe eternal conscious torment, well, in their view, the purpose of that fire is torture. Plain and simple, just endless torture and suffering forever and ever. Those who hold to annihilation or conditional immortality, in their view, the, the role and the purpose and the nature of that fire is destruction. You, you suffer for a little bit, you undergo some form of judgment in the fire, but then ultimately that fire burns you up and you cease to exist. So destruction would be the nature of the fire. But those who held to universal reconciliation, what they see the fire as, the fire is restorative. The fire is a purifying fire, or as it says in the Old Testament, it uses those two interchangeably, a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, meaning it's meant to cleanse, to heal, to restore. Paul uses this metaphor when he talks about how everyone passes through the fire, and he says that some who pass through the fire, the fire will reveal gold and silver and precious stones. That's a metaphor, again, for the things in our lives that have borne good fruit that glorify God, right? The things in us that reveal Christ in us. But he then says that even if someone passes through the fire and everything is burned up and nothing is left, no gold, 
No silver, no precious stones. I mean, you pass through the fire and everything is burned up. There is no good in you at all. You know what Paul says? He says, and yet they will be saved, but only as those who pass through the fire. So again, everyone has to pass through this fire. Jesus says this too. Jesus says, everyone and everything will be salted with fire. But again, the question is, and this is the second difference between these three views. It's not just that the three views take different views on the nature of the fire. They also have, all three of them, have a different view on the nature of God. And ultimately, this is where I land. Eternal conscious torment. If you embrace that view, you're not just saying something about fire. You're not just saying something about where people go after they die. You're saying that you believe something about the character of God, that God is a torturer. If you embrace annihilation or a conditional immortality, you're saying that you believe that the nature of God is that God is a destroyer. God destroys his enemies. But if you embrace the view of universal reconciliation, which the church did for and in the majority for the first five, six hundred years of church history, if you embrace this view, then your view is saying something about God. And what it's saying about God is that God is a loving father who cares for all of his children, a God whose desire is that none should perish, a God who has decided that it's within God's power to make sure every one of his children is restored and redeemed and transformed into the image of Christ so that everyone would maintain their connection with God for all eternity. And so I would say very simply, it boils down to what is your view of God? Do you believe that God is a torturer? Do you believe that God is a destroyer? Or do you believe that God is a loving father who heals, restores, redeems, and transforms his children because God is love. And as it says in First John, all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Do you agree with the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 when he says that God disciplines those he loves, and everyone undergoes discipline, and that the purpose of that discipline is for our good so that we can all share in the holiness of God, and that this discipline, this punishment, has an ultimate goal to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Well, that's what I believe. And I thank you for joining me for Second Cup with Keith. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you're curious about this topic and you'd like to read more about it, I have written a book on this. It's called Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment with a foreword by Brad Jerzak. It's available from Choir Publishing. It's available in print, Kindle, and audiobook. You can find that on Amazon. Just go and check that out. And again, thank you for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I really enjoy these conversations and I look forward to sitting down with you again with the Second Cup very, very soon. Thanks a lot.